Welcome to episode 111, The Violence of Advice, Helping Without Overpowering, featuring Stephen Andrew, licensed clinical social worker and licensed alcohol and drug counselor, interviewed by Elizabeth E. Riaz. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. Today we are joined by Stephen Andrew. He is a licensed clinical social worker and a licensed alcohol and drug counselor. And he is going to be joining us today to talk about the violence of advice. Uh, he is um, a member of the International Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers, which he's been since 2003, meaning that he's very specialized in motivational interviewing. And he's going to be talking with us today about looking through the lens of being an effective helper without overpowering our clients with things like advice. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Steve, and I'm delighted to have you. I'm also delighted to be here. So thank you. My pleasure. And Stephen, why don't you take a minute and tell us a bit about your background and how to how you came to have this specialization in motivational interviewing in your current work? I think the beautiful part of the story is that I, I was given a high paying job as a social worker, which doesn't even actually go together. And it um, I, I had three months off every year. It was such a beautiful job. And the only thing I had to do was go into a classroom and teach young people about alcohol and other drugs. What a beautiful job. A 401k or it, it really had all the benefits. And um, there was only one small problem. And that was the young people didn't want what I had to offer. There's so much about what we're doing with people about trying to offer them things that they really are ambivalent about at best. And I was actually paid good money to try to do this to young people. And they were kind, they were thoughtful, and they really didn't want it. And I, I was given things like evidence-based practices, which is magical words. And I opened up the curriculum and I offered it. And I, I got to tell you, they didn't want it, evidence-based or not. There's something fundamentally wrong in the practice of provision to people. We provide information, we provide curriculums, we provide skill training, we provide. And what I have learned from that experience of being with those young people was that it was actually my job to elicit and not provide. But that's not what I thought. I thought that I was supposed to give them something. And I kept doing that work and I kept feeling more and more frustrated. And when I went to colleagues, they would say to me, oh, consider it seed theory, like you're planting seeds for them later on. I thought, that's pretty ineffective. I don't know if people know this, but you could dump thousands of seeds out on the ground and they're not going to take hold. So uh, I was really touched with trying to figure out what to do. And I got an email from a friend that said, hey, there's a free workshop in Albuquerque, New Mexico. All you have to do is get there. And I thought to myself, oh, great, it's free. Because the truth is, I hate workshops. Because somebody is always telling you something. When in fact, the job is to elicit from people and then provide within the context of their information. So off to uh, Albuquerque I went, I met Bill Miller and I hang out with Terry Moyer and I got to listen to them and I fell in love. And I went back thinking, I can do this. And I did my first recording and it was a bomb because I was spending time trying to tell people how to change their lives. So that's how I came to it. Uh, I've worked really hard for the last, that was in 2000, for the last 20 years on motivational interviewing. And uh, I brought it into group work. I've trained all over the world. Uh, I've had a great time with it. But I, if I could be honest with you, I'm not even sure that it's motivational interviewing. And that's probably not good to say. I think it's compassion and empathy. 
And I, when I did any kind of model out there, a clinical model at all, I noticed that it was expert driven. Like, you know, you're trying to help people change their thinking pattern, or you're trying to help somebody get the kind of skills they need, or you're trying to elicit from them the trauma of their history. You know, you, there's always something you're doing to people. Well, but what happens if, if that's really wrong? Without their permission, what if that's really wrong? What if that's actually violent? What if it says you're not worthy? What if you're not smart enough? You don't get it. And what happens if the, this, this idea that people have a, a soft, compassionate voice that lives within, that knows exactly what they need to do, and that they might need some skills around it or material around it, but that the people are doing the best that they can with the resources they have. And that's really what it, it took me down this road with motivational interviewing. I, 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 am, I am so touched uh, by the idea that empathy is the antidote to shame. It sounds like your conceptualization of this kind of started in one place, your own observation that talking at people wasn't working and then wanting to figure out where change happened and how to facilitate it while being really mindful of the importance of the connection between two people. Um, so, so let's start there. Let's talk about power in the therapy room and how that comes into play, particularly around this idea of advice giving, the use of motivational interviewing, where all of these pieces kind of combine together. Well, I, I just think you know, when people come to us, they almost come with this belief, you know, that they don't know, they, they, they don't know uh, uh, what to do. You know, that's why they come to see us, that they, you know, that, that, that somehow the society or the culture has told them that you don't know the answers to this question, the one that they're sort of struggling with. You, which is a relational question or a substance use question or, a, uh, you know, they're struggling with their anxiety disorder, whatever it might be. And the issue is that then the pesky ego, the parts of us that just really love that people come to us and say, tell me, tell me what I should do. And we like we we almost get like big. We go, okay. I've been going to school and I've learned what to say here, and, and then we spew something out, and then they do the two magic words that tell us that we just haven't gotten it. Two magic words are yes, but you can hear it when a client just or a patient or a person you serve says yes, but, and it happens all the time, and. Uh, we don't understand that what we're really trying to do is to see the individual like a garden to be tended, that we're trying to till the ground. And then we're trying to, you know, plant the seeds according to what will work for them. And then we're going to kind of spend the time supporting by making sure that the right environments are there for them to create an atmosphere where people's own soft, compassionate voice could come alive. And then what's going to pop up is their values. I have a phrase that, uh, that, that people quote me for all the time, but, you know, we, we walk around saying that meet people where they're at. I mean, you've heard it a thousand times. And I tell people, please stop meeting people where they're at. Please meet them with a dream. Meet them with a value in their lives. Meet them at the place where they have a desire, a wish, a hope. Because if you meet them where they're at, you're going to meet them in the midst of the suffering. And that's where you're going to be. And it's beyond that. There's something right beautiful about the human being that's beyond the suffering. And uh, I, think, I think Carl Rogers, even in his book of the way of being, you know, sort of struggled with this. Like, I wonder if I couldn't get beyond the way of just being with people. Can I listen for people's dreams? That job I like. The job in which I was trying to give people information 
or trying to give them skills or trying to tell them what's wrong with them. That job I did not like. I was tired. I was compassion fatigued. I was burnt out. I felt responsible, not to cultivate a garden, but to fix a machine. So in what you're saying, the difference between fixing a machine or cultivating a garden, those paint two very different pictures. You know, one is working alongside and the other is is pretty vividly painting the picture of one person being over. Um, what mistakes do you commonly see in practice that create discord between the clinician and the client? Well, first thing I want to just explain to you is that there is no discord between the client and the patient. This is a big mistake we make. The discord is between ourselves and ourselves. We want to, um, there's a pesky ego that lives within you that wants to be helpful to people. And then there's another part of you that just wants to connect on a deep level. And they both exist. And the discord is within ourselves. Because people come to us in very different ways. Some people come to us mad and angry that they got sent by their partners or, you know, they get told to come and, and, and by some system. And then there's the other people who come and go, couldn't you tell me what I should do? Isn't that what you're here for? And we fall. We fall into the trap. We go, Oh, yes. Okay. I can tell you, you know, and it's almost, um, it's almost amazing because at that moment, you're sort of saying, I know you don't know. That is a form of violence. That's a form of oppression. And yes, people have victimized and yes, they believe that they don't know, but that's not necessarily true. And wouldn't real therapy, wouldn't real clinical work be, I believe in you. I believe in your soft, compassionate voice. I believe that the core of your being has never been damaged, no matter how traumatized you've been. That the core of your being is not damaged. And that in your core of your true self yearns the desire to love, yearns the desire for power and control over the destiny of one's life, yearns for purpose. And then finally, yearns to belong, to be a part of. I mean, it's there's that core never goes away. That kind of yearning never goes away, no matter what. When you talk about the idea of really, I think the client's wisdom, allowing and supporting the client and accessing their wisdom, and the idea of clinician as helper quote unquote, I can see how even the use of that word implies that they are needing help. Like yes. there's already, there's already a power differential that appears. Yes. And when you say between the therapist and themselves, if we are in this quote unquote helping profession, when we feel like we are not able to help, that's when all of this stuff seems to get activated. Exactly. And that's when we start feeling burnt out. That's when we feel this compassion fatigue. I mean, people are walking around going, boy, am I tired. And I go, the minute you're tired, you've taken responsibility for another human being in which you have no power. You don't have any control. And in fact, you've just done a form of oppression. In assuming that that person doesn't have power themselves or doesn't have wisdom. And, and, and is somehow damaged. And that the trauma has, I mean, the biggest problem we have is that we, we're so focused on the problem that we don't understand that there's so much internal wisdom that even came from the problem. There's so much internal wisdom that people have that are far beyond, and they still, believe it or not, want to love well. They want to love well or be loved well or, or want power and control over the destiny of their lives. It just is remarkable what people have been through and they still find a way. Tell me about the way motivational interviewing and the research about therapy 
Um, the research about change views things like advice. You know, it's, it is second nature for us as human beings to say, here's what you should do. You know, and of course, the, the joking phrase is that we start shooting all over ourselves and all over others. And that's when we get into advice. So does it work? Tell me about that. Well, the first thing I want to say is I have a, um, I call it the 11th commandment. It's, it's thou shall not should on myself. There's two parts of this should. There are workers saying I should help these people. And then there's the, the client who says I should seek help from somebody else. You know, both of them are shame. I mean, should equals shame. And, and the only antidote that we know to shame is empathy. So what I understand about the research of motivational interviewing is that you're trying to listen for the change talk. You're trying to listen for the change theory. And it's probably bubbling up from the values that are important for this person. And it's almost like um, I, I'm sitting with you, I'm cultivating the story, I'm listening to the story through the eyes of empathy and compassion, and I, and and up bubbles, almost like like the plants in your garden, up bubbles, it peeks through the ground, you know, that beautiful turnip or whatever it is that you're growing, you know, the flowers, uh, it just pops up. And then if it's a good, if it's a good clinician, they grab a hold of what just popped up from the compassionate wisdom that lives within, you know, they're listening for the pop-ups. You know, that's the most exciting part of the work is like when you see it, everybody is like excited and you can feel the energy between the two of you, you know, that, oh, oh, there, look it, it's the pumpkin, it's coming up. And we're all excited, like we're seeing the garden for the first time. You know, that's clinical work. That, that, that's the harvesting of what is that soft, compassionate voice that lives within. Now, how do you get there, you know, is that you first have to quiet the suffering that sits in the frontal cortex. You, you have to join with people in a, in a powerful way, and, you know, often called engagement. I, I don't know if I like that word because it feels sort of, sort of like two pieces of machinery engaging each other. I, I, I really love that connection. There's two hearts. There are two people that are powerful in the room. One is powerful. The client, the patient is powerful about their story, about their lives, about the way out. And the, and the clinician is uh, powerful about the process of doing the garden in the first place. And that we're both power with rather than power over. And here's some of the techniques that I notice that people do when they're doing power over. They ask lots of questions. So if you ask a series of questions, three, four, or five questions in a row, then you're doing power over. Why, are you, why is that power over? Because you're trying to draw the information to you. And what if, what if I told you, you actually don't matter? What matters here is to see the wisdom come from the individual sitting across from you, sitting beside you. That's the beauty of it. Like, if you're asking questions, you want your, your curiosity is in charge. Your curiosity is attached to your ego. It wants to know. Well, if you're more empathetic, this is where the research of MI says, if you're, if you're three times more empathetic than you are asking questions, then you're already, right, you're giving to rather than taking from. And I love empathy as a gift from the heart to another heart that reduces the shame. And a question is a, is, is a curiosity that pulls from somebody. You know, and if you're, if you're playing on the garden, you want to pull lightly the weeds, but you don't want to pull the stuff you just were trying to grow. You know, you don't want to pull too much. You want to be uh, what I call a dash of curiosity. And that's just one way. You know, the other ways are people tend to, or clinicians tend to get about, I don't know, about halfway, maybe three quarters of the way into a conversation with somebody in a session. 
And there's something almost like gets activated in their brain that says, time to be the problem solver. <laughs> it pops up and they kind of go, all right, I got the problem now. All right, let's go. And then they start kind of, they might even do something like ask permission, which is a common thing in MI. It's like ask permission. Can I give you some ideas? I think, I think ask permission is a, is a way in which, if I could be honest, doesn't really have a lot of research to it. But MI put it in there because they were afraid that counselors wouldn't have anything to do and uh, that they, they might be not be useful when it was all over. I can't tell you how useful empathy is. I can't even begin to tell you how, how, how acceptance, radical acceptance to what people are thinking, radical acceptance of their view of the world, and, and compassion have. And compassion is an interesting word because it's thrown around to do a lot of different things. But for me, it's about the ability to sit with suffering. It's the ability to sit with suffering. What, what most of us can't, you know, we get triggered by suffering. Like when people are really hurting, we start going blah, blah, blah. We start telling them what we think they ought to do with, or we tell them the opposite. They'll go, I'm a horrible human being because of the way I treat my kids. Well, I don't see you that way because you're here today. I mean, it's, it, that's a violent act because that's not what they're saying. That's not what they feel. That's not who they are in this moment. I have made. I, I often tell in my workshops a mistake I made. I'll never forget the 22-year-old who said, "All I want to do is go to Walmart, get a gun, and shoot myself." I remember feeling so scared, and all, I, I, I sort of looked at him and I said, "Isn't there anything you'd like to live for?" What a violent act that was, because that's not what he said. That's not where he was. But I was scared with the suffering. So I asked a question to see if I can move the topic. That, that's the kind of violence that I witness all the time. So Stephen, let me ask you, now you know differently. If you had the opportunity to go back to being in the room with that client when he said that thing, what would you do differently knowing what you know now? You feel incredibly hopeless right now. That's what I would have said to him. It's a extension of the compassion you were talking about. So sitting with the suffering instead of trying to redirect it someplace else, really because that's what we are more comfortable with. Yes, and it's about us at that point. It's that pesky ego. It's the you know, it's a part of us that wants to move it that we're afraid to enable. We get all of these words that we say, we can't make assumptions. I, 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 I go to every single workshop, people go and raise their hand and say, I can't make any assumptions. And I go, how could you do empathy without assumptions? How could you possibly not? How, if you join another human being in the context of their perception, how could you not be making assumptions? How could you be guessing? what they think or feel. Uh, you know, if I was you, I'd be feeling. If I was you, I'd be. Wouldn't that be empathy? Empathy is not copying what they say. Empathy is feeling and, and thinking. What are they not saying? That's the beauty. And that's where MI came into complex reflections and, you know, things like that where they sort of said, you know, and, and we got good research that says complex reflections is what moves the conversation. You know, not simple reflections, not sort of, you know, and oh, God, we, we're so many, like, somebody says something like that, we'll say, so it sounds like you're feeling this. I'd want to hurt you if I was a client, you said that back to me. You know, we do this reflective listening stuff that it just seems painful. All of that is to protect us, you know. That's, that's the beauty of it. It's protecting us. I don't want to get it wrong. So I'm not going to say, you're feeling hopeless, right? So let's say that you said to this client, you're feeling hopeless right now. Let's play this out. Let's step into fantasy land. Um, what's the benefit in doing that? And where are you hoping that that's going to go 
um, during this time, like, and knowing that you can't control where the client's necessarily going to go, but what are, what are your goals in that moment in reflecting back that way and not saying that it sounds like, but just simply here is, you know, here's what I see in front of me. Where do you want it to go? I have enjoyed you. I don't need it to go anywhere. Just be careful. Don't need it to go anywhere. I want him to look at me and say, yes, you get it. It's a connection. That's your only goal is to foster connection and and a shared human experience. A therapeutic alliance, a moment in time where you felt heard and believed. And then I might ask the question after that that would say, what do you want to do next? Where do you go from here? You know, but I, but I don't only do that to move the conversation towards the dreams. You see in the suffering in your face right now and in your story is I got to move it off of the suffering. And I'm trying to say to you, sit with it a little longer. They need you to. There's something sacred, I think, in, in that idea that by staying in it, you're showing I'm not afraid of it. I, I'm yeah. willing to stand here. You don't need to hide it. And I could also see the power of, you know, being able as a client to sit with somebody that doesn't react to it, doesn't tell us to hide it or put it away. You know, like we might have been taught by a teacher or by a parent or a friend that's like, oh, no, no, don't tell anybody about that. Um, but the ability to stay with it. And then, you know, basically, so the client has pulled something out of their pockets and we go, oh my, look at that, instead yeah. of put it away. And we're also, I then would imagine modeling for the client, the power of sitting with it, which we could have a whole separate conversation and talking about the research and the value of staying with our feelings instead of trying to yeah. push them away, the utilization of, of mindfulness. Yeah, exactly. So, so then you're with the client and you've avoided the trap of giving advice um, how are you conceptualizing the goal when so many of us are goal-driven, when we have a treatment plan that we have to write to for our insurance companies? And here I am, you know, a, a specialist in clinical documentation. How, how do you describe this work? Because you are coming at it from a Rogerian perspective. You are saying, you know, basically healing exists between, between humans, and in the connection and the research supports exactly what you're saying. But then we live in this world where everything has to be done in order to. So um, I'm loving that we're in the middle of this and you've asked me the more difficult questions. Thank you. <laughs> um, the first answer I wanna give you is that we can't. I don't know why, but we have, we have a systematic system that believes that people are broken and that they need to be fixed that we're training people to be mechanics. We're, 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 we're reinforcing the idea that people are uh, broken and they need us to fix them. It's almost a, a universal piece. And we're asked to write about the documentation of it and, and, and come up with treatment plans and so on and so forth. I think there's a place for action but I think the history of all this is that it was acute medicine. And acute medicine is a broken leg. And you got to have a treatment plan for a broken leg. But we don't have people that are all acute. We have people that are actually chronic. And what I mean by chronic is that it's not acute. It's a, it's a cycle that they're in. And we can't use acute models with chronic patients. And we, and we keep messing it up, and we need a double language. We need two languages. We need the language of chronicity and the language of acuity. And what you're talking about right now is the language of acuity, which is a treatment plan, a service plan, a care plan. You know, those are the language. That, that makes perfect sense if you take your child to the doctors and they're vomiting. That makes perfect sense. You want an acute plan. What are we going to do? You don't care whether they reflect one empathetic statement at all. Do you just care that they find the solution, do the right plan, and follow through? 
we did ourselves a disservice in behavioral health. And that is we attached ourselves to medicine. We put ourselves together and we decided that we would then make every one of our systems attached to the acute model. The problem is a substance use disorder patient has a chronic problem. And coming up with a treatment plan when he is ambivalent about what to do, live or die, doesn't make sense. So what I propose is that we make up treatment plans for the clinician when people are ambivalent, and that we make up treatment plans for people when they're in action for them, so that when people are chronic, we make up a treatment plan for what are we going to do with them. For instance, we're going to utilize motivational interviewing. We're going to look at their ambivalence. We're going to write about their ambivalence. We're going to think about what is their values and change talk and all of that. We're going to write that down because that's how we treat chronic problems. But then when people are in action, they sort of say, hey, I want this. Then we got a treatment plan for what they want. And that's in action. So. We're going to move people from chronic to acuity. We're going to move people from, from ambivalence to action. And then we're going to have a treatment plan. But we got to stop writing acute treatment plans for people that are chronic. We're hurting ourselves and we're hurting them. And we're asking social workers, psychologists, and people to be creative writers instead of caring about their patients. It's wrong. I hope we'll stop soon. I don't mean to take away a piece of your business to do this. I still <laughs> believe in documentation. I just think we need to be focused on the right issue. I actually completely agree. Um, and and I, I, I love what you just said, which was when clients are ambivalent, the treatment plan is really for us. It's a chronic problem. So we have to come up with solutions of what we are going to do. How are we going to help with the acknowledgement of this problem? And then when the client is in the action stage, then the treatment is really about then what the client is going to do. I, I absolutely love I, the way I I just wrote that down. I love the way that you just said that because I think it's so helpful and illustrative because I, you know, when, when we get back to this idea of advice and the violence of advice, as you say, when we are meeting with a client that's ambivalent, that's like often a helper's worst nightmare. Yes. <laughs> it's just like, how could you not know that that's an addiction and you don't want to do anything about it? Um, or, or, you know, that's, that's really bad. And that's why your relationships are suffering. Um, and we crash into that. And then we don't know how to proceed. Um, one thing I've, I've heard you talk about, and I want to invite you into it is the concept of the uh, quote, writing reflex. Unquote. Mm. Um, tell me about that. Tell me what that is and how that comes into play with this equation about advice and power. Well, the writing reflex is actually the, the ego. It, it sort of says, I'm going to write the situation for you. I'm going to set you straight. I'm going to, and, and I like, I have a phrase that I love, which is to hold the right position is to destroy a relationship. If your brain gets attached to the right position, right? If you get attached to the right position, you, then spend your time persuading others towards your right position. Every single violent act done between two people is a perception of right position. Wars are about right position. Uh, the stuckness in a government is about right positions. It, it's sort of this, uh, once your I, ego gets centered on a right position, You'll destroy anything around you for your position. And that is really where we miss in our clinical work. We don't see that we got somebody who's suffering with substance use disorder pretty severely. They're losing everything. They just lost their job. They lost their license. They lost their relationships. Even their children don't want to speak to them. And they're sitting in front of us. And we want to say, can't you see it's about your drinking? And they want to say, you know, I don't feel loved by anybody. And I never have. 
and we go into these theories like first things first. So we then say, well, I bet you'd feel more loved if you'd stop your drinking. And we don't understand that the underlying trauma right there is really the reason they're drinking. And if you took it away, they would have to experience that pain even more. But we don't see it that way. And that's the violence again. And we would write down the treatment plan. And we go back to the treatment plan issue just for a moment. And that is the more we expect the, the clinicians to write the treatment plans about the client in ambivalence, we again have them going into the sessions pushing for treatment. If we don't separate these two out, ambivalence and action, or on a spiritual level, fear and love, if we don't separate these out, then what we're going to do is that people are going to be programmed to think treatment when they shouldn't be thinking treatment. They should be thinking, how do I connect with this suffering? There's nothing more beautiful, even no matter how painful it is, no matter how horrible the traumatic story is, no matter how complex the trauma history is, for somebody to feel like somebody knows them. You get it. You get me. That It sends off chemicals in the body. It, it creates an, a, a, a belief in yourself, and that feeds this this compassionate wisdom that lives within. And that will rise to the surface. Do you remember the little toy, the eight ball? You remember you, you, you would hold on to it, right? And you'd ask a question and then you'd turn it over and an answer would float up. It was such a, we, we didn't like the answers most of the time. We shook it and tried again. But the human being is sort of like that. If we can soften the suffering through empathy, if we can soften the shame, then we can ask the question, and it floats up. And the only reason it won't float up is because the shame blocks it. Because if I'm not worthy, then I can't have what I want. And, and people go to counselors. They go to counselors so not to get a fix or not to get the right idea. But five years later, when we asked people, what did you remember about that therapy? I just remembered her warmth. I remembered her caring about me. I remember her tears when I cried. That's what they remember. They don't even remember the little tools that we gave them, like the little mindful tool that we gave them to get through something. They remember the connection. We have every bit of research that says, and that what I loved about motivational interviewing is, that, is, is for me, that's what they listen for. You know, what, what they did in Albuquerque was just listen to conversations and see where people came up with their own ideas. <laughs> you know, instead of trying to guess how people do it, which is what most of the research is, somebody thinking, well, this would be helpful to people, and then let's go ahead and prove it, you know. Uh, it, this theory was based on let's listen to the counselor and the client and see what pops up. And here's the only premise that it offered. Only premise that it offered was, if people come up with their own ideas, they're more likely to follow through. And I've taken that all over the world and I've asked everybody that I met, do you believe that that's true? That if people naturally come up with their own ideas, they're more likely to follow through. I have never got a no all over the world, asking everybody. On the other hand, clinical work is telling people what they ought to do. I think it doesn't even make sense. Why would we do it if we know it doesn't work? But because most of us have a little pesky ego that lives inside of us that wants to do the writing reflex. It wants to do something that's helpful to people, even if the research says it's not. So... What happens when we use power over, when our pesky ego rears its ugly, overconfident little head? What are the consequences in session? In, and not even in session, outside of session too. What, what happens for that client in their experience of therapy? Well, the first is that a lot of folks have been hurt. So they automatically think, oh, that's, that's exactly what I'm supposed to get here. 
because that's their injury in the first place, that somebody used power over them. All trauma is about power. All trauma. It's not about physical abuse or emotional abuse or sexual abuse. It's about power, and it's power over. So some people are walking there going, and they actually encourage you. They go, could you tell me what to do? I mean, they even go, please do power over me because that's the recreation of my life. This is how I understand life. And so the, the worker goes, okay, I'll do that for you. And then we recreated the trauma. We, 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 you know, that's what happens in relationships. Why wouldn't it happen in our relationship? You know, people recreate the wounds of their lives. So they do it in therapy. That's one group. The other group gets mad in therapy and kind of doesn't come back. They go, well, screw this. This wasn't very helpful to me. I'm not coming back. But that that's not bad, except it leaves a bad taste in their mouth for all therapy. And then they don't come back when they need it to some place that might be helpful to them. 85% of the shooters in our country, the people who shot people, mass murders, have incredible pain going on in their lives, never saw a therapist, 85%. Why? Why would they be suffering that long and never walk into a therapist's office? I can tell you that they believe that the therapist is going to tell them what to do, and they want to maintain power and control over the destiny of their lives. I just want to say to you, we've got to change our image. We're not about telling people what to do. We're about cultivating a garden about cultivating the fruits of the human soul. That's very different. That's a different job. What you said that really resonated with me was all trauma is about power. And I can think of so many times in therapy when working with a client and somehow you know the, the power differential is there. We can't avoid it. We are the ones that say when the doors are open, when they're not, how much it's going to cost. You know, it's, it's inherently there. Uh, but then it's on us to try to equalize it, to acknowledge it um, and try to equalize it and, and meet as humans. But I can think of so many times with clients that have a trauma history and, and realistically we all do, but for clients that have an extensive trauma history, the, um, the set point, the baseline of then inviting me into power over where they, they assume a position that is what I call down dog uh, versus up dog. And so they're in down dog, I'm an up dog and my effort to try to bring it back down. And so acknowledging, oh my goodness, I, I just got put up on a pedestal, what's happening there. Um, but the importance I think in recognizing not only do we do this to clients where we take power over, but sometimes we are cast in that role because that's what, as you said, that's what they're accustomed to. And we need to be aware of the risk of that happening. We're, we're, we're actually invited into it. There's an energetic hypnotic pull. And that if we're mindful of it and we decide that there's two experts in the room, that they're the experts of their lives and the soft, compassionate voice that lives within, and that we're the expert on process, then each of us would be doing recordings all the time to make sure that we can see our work and hear our work and to make sure that we have a power sharing process going on, that it's about power with, not power over, and that power over is actually a re-oppression, a, a re-traumatization of the human soul. We have not got to that kind of level of work. We have not taken responsibility for the intervention and let go of the outcome. We take responsibility for the outcome and not so much for the intervention. And we're missing, we're really missing the boat. If, if you as a clinician haven't recorded your work and had other people or yourself listen to it in the last month, then you don't know what you don't know about yourself. And we haven't done it. We haven't been in that kind of observation. We haven't seen the tenderness of power over. We just haven't even seen it. Because remember, 
we're not the recipients of it. So we don't even know it's happening unless we have some kind of observer eye, something that pulls us away to take a look and listen. Um, or I have somebody else listen to it. I mean, that's why I designed a coding lab of seven people here just to listen to people's conversations because they believe wholeheartedly we don't have a way out. Our pesky ego is going to believe that we're doing good work. And the research says when you ask a clinician if they're doing good work, they often say yes, and they don't know it. But the gap between their work and what they're actually doing to people is huge in terms of power width. Huge. We do intakes. You know that. We do intakes. That's a power over. Now, we even go into it with, with this cautiousness, like, I, I have to ask you lots of questions, and I'm sorry about that. And, 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 and um, if there's any that make you uncomfortable, please don't answer them. We're still doing it. We're doing it with this uncomfortability, but we're still doing it. And everybody I talk to says, oh, yeah, it, it doesn't feel good to be asking people personal questions on the first visit. But we do it anyways. And they'll, this is what they'll say. Well, I'm expected to. Standard of care. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, so let me see if I get this correctly. You've been told to abuse people. You're going to keep doing it. You've been told to use power over people, but you're going to call it standard of care. You know what? When people abuse people, when people do power over them, they believe that it's the standard of care. They believe that they should be treated that way. When we oppress cultures, when we oppress religions, when we oppress people, there's a concept in our being that says we should be doing that to them. We stigmatize people all the time. I just don't want to be a part of it. I would like to stop now. I'd like to stop the violence by just saying I'm not going to. Even when people ask me, I say, you know, I could give you the answer. I could give you the answer of what you want right now. But I do know this, that if you come up with your own ideas, you're more likely to follow through. And I imagine there's one behind that's just fearful of coming out. There's an idea there, a thought that you've been mulling around. And generally, you know what? I find that people have it. They have their own thoughts. They have their own wisdom. You know, and sometimes it's asking for help. But, it, but I first want to challenge them before they give it up. You looked puzzled my dear friend. <sighs> no, I'm, I'm thinking about everything that you're saying. And, and of course, the clinical documentation part of me, I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one trying to crack this nut. You know, I was talking with Dr. Daryl Chow about it recently in Australia, who's working on doing research um, on, you know, basically, how do we change the intake session because of everything that you just said, you know, that, that there are many of us that are aware of this phenomenon, that is an extension of the medical model, and we are considered, you know, our, our notes are medical records. And so we have this confluence of factors, you and I could talk in a whole separate podcast simply about that fact. But I think there's, right now, we have to walk this line on how we can match both of these things, how we can work alongside these two separate, sometimes oppositional ideas of needing to gather this information and how can we do it in in as gentle and compassionately a way as possible while still checking some boxes. That 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 was the puzzled expression. And for all of our listeners, we are recording this through video. So that's how Steven can see my face. Um, Right. But so I just want so, to say back to you that listen, one of the one of the answers to that question is don't touch any forms for the first 20 minutes. Don't touch anything. Cultivate a garden, turn up the land, and then ask permission to ask questions. But don't do it right away. Consider the person much more important than any question you might ever ask, except for the first one which is tell me what kind of support you would like from me. That is pretty much exactly um, the conversation that I've had with others and this the idea of trying to do these two things together um, because the assessment session, the treatment planning session inherently contribute to that power over phenomenon. And it's up to us then as clinicians 
to be mindful of that in the room. And I, and I want to ask you, regardless of intake or any other time, how do we as clinicians recognize when we are using power over? What are the red flags? And we go, whoa. When you hear two words, I said it earlier, there are two words that come into language all the time. And if you're really aware of them, they're called yes, but. When a client says back to you, yes, but, you didn't hear them. <laughs> you really didn't hear what they were saying. They were saying yes to you because you had some idea or some thought or some place you were going or you're trying to persuade something. And then they were going, but, and then they're really going to tell you they're suffering again. They're going to tell you why they can't do it. And what, you're, what they're saying to you is, you haven't listened to my suffering. So there's a red flag often, which is yes, but. I think another one is that you can tell when people are more energetically open to you and then when, or when they're more closed down to you. So the other day I got to observe uh, a resident psychiatrist and she asked a 19-year-old person 119 questions in the first interview. And all he did was answer yes or no. No, in, the energy did not change. She was trying to do the intake packet, plus trying to engage him. But she only had one strategy in her head, which was to do the assessment through curiosity, through questions. She never knew any other way. So what do you think that 19-year-old felt like when he left? I don't want to go there. I don't want to be there. Now, I wouldn't mind that, except... If he's really suffering and he doesn't go back, he's not going to go back for quite a while. That's the part that bothers me the most. Yes, we're not holding each other accountable. We're not asking for the intervention, you know, the being responsible for the intervention. Even nothing. I, I don't see it. We're responsible for the treatment plan, not for the intervention. I'm, I'm looking for the records to be written about how we did the intervention. I'm, I'm, I'm like looking for the day in which we submit recordings to get licensed, not treatment plans. You know, I'm, I'm going to submit a recording of my work with this client and let you code that, and then I'll get paid. Not that I wrote a really beautiful treatment plan because I'm a creative writer. Yeah, I am absolutely in agreement and I appreciate where you're coming from because basically you're saying we're able to illustrate what what should be effective or what the client should do, but we're not actually assessing the true effectiveness of that. And that's one of the the problems with psychotherapy. That was um, a podcast we recently have with Dr. Chow and Dr. Scott Miller in this conversation of how do we get past this as a field because we're we're very connected to. But I did this. I did EMDR, and it should have worked. And if it didn't, then it was it was the client's responsibility, not me as a provider, to figure out the right trans or right uh, intervention or the right way to join and be with that person in the room. And it's a it's a paradigm shift. What we're talking about, even this whole conversation is something that I think a lot of us are not trained to think this way. And even thinking about master's programs, I speak at a university level, I know you've done teaching before, that we come at it and we basically say, check these boxes and you will be good at your job. But we're learning more and more that that's simply not true. <laughs> you know, and, and you mentioned Scott Miller and, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm profoundly touched by his work where he would be even more radical to say that it's possible that none of this stuff works except for the relationship. And I like that thought. And I'm not talking Carl Rogers anymore. I'm talking about I'm talking about something different, which is Carl Rogers was willing with empathy and a deep understanding and positive regard to make sure that he said that would change people. It won't change people. What changes people is the clinician listening for the dreams, listening for what pops up, what listening for the what what Scott would call the change theory. You know, I, what, what, I, what I refer to it as dreams, desires, hopes. I actually know the four areas in which they will pop up in. And that is love. That is power. 
that is purpose and that is belongingness and that people want that deep in their core. And all we're going to do is listen and we hear those pop-ups and go, oh, there it is. There it is. There's the harvest of our garden. That is the beauty of it. And that's, you know, I, I thank Scott. I thank others before me to, uh, you know, Bill, uh, uh, others to, to help me think that through. And But I've, I have to say that uh, I've always kind of had it. I just needed their permission to keep it up. We have covered a very interesting array of topics during this time, Stephen. So we've, we've talked about the idea of power with and power over and how to recognize the difference between those two things. We've talked about this fundamental human capacity for compassion and that we need to bring that into the room. We've talked about its relationship to clinical documentation, which always makes my heart start beating a little faster because I get all excited. Um, and, and we've talked about really the effectiveness of the work and how to really I think primarily be aware, more aware of ourselves in the room and how our use of power is effectively potentially re-traumatizing our clients and is inhibiting their recovery, their growth out of shame. Um, you are so eloquent in the way that you describe these things. How can our listeners get in touch with you? How can they um, learn more about your work and what are other resources that you recommend to help people start making this shift in their work if they're interested in diving deeper? Well, first, I want to just say thank you for doing this. It's been, it's been an honor in the midst of all this virus to hang out with you and to talk about something that's passionate. Um, so people can reach me at... Uh, Hetty.org, uh, which is www.heti, Maine, which is M A I N E, all one, uh, .org. That's my website uh, on there. Actually, Stephen, let me stop you for a minute. So tell us what Hetty is. Um, I don't think you've talked about that yet. So tell us what that is, please. Well, um, it, it is uh, us doing training. Uh, for motivational interviewing and for power of groups and uh, talking about ethics. Uh, this is a very beautiful conversation about ethics, about what is ethical work that we're doing. Um, it is a, a coding lab of people who listen to coding of conversations by clinicians uh, and give them feedback about how consistent they are with uh, motivational interviewing. Uh, it is um, also simulated clients. We have actors who get on the phone with people and have conversations so that they can practice and get feedback. Um, we also have training the trainer. where We're basically a full service uh, focused on motivational interviewing, probably one of the, the largest in the country. Uh, we give out a certification for people on motivational interviewing by doing one recording, then another, then another, then another. And if you do three competent conversations in a row, we give you a certificate. Um, very hard to do, very difficult, but uh, again, sort of what we're about. Thank you. And so that's the Health Education Training Institute, and that's hence your H-E-T-I main. Um, so people know kind of the context of your work and this resource that you've really offered to the community. Um, what are other resources that you recommend, different books, different websites that can help people start to approach therapy in this in this different way? You know, not the the checkbox format, but in the flexible human-based format. Well again, I would go back to motivational dot motivational interviewing dot org and there's a website to to look up other people who are doing it, other trainings all over the country. Uh, and there are lots of people invested in doing this. There's a wonderful podcast uh, by a group of people called Talking uh, for Change, uh, done uh, with people who are in motivational interviewing. Um, I, I want to offer one simple book. It has nothing to do with any of this. And it's uh, by Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, and it's How to Love. Um, it's a very small book. Uh, but what he says is so beautiful, which is 
you know, that people know how to love well, they're just not very skillful. And I think of that as clinical work too, that we're, we know how to love, we know how to be compassionate, but we're just not very skilled. Thank you, Stephen. This has been delightful to spend this time with you. And um, I hope our listeners have found it as insightful and also, I think, inspiring as I have. So thank you again. And maybe we'll find another opportunity to do it. I would love that. I would too. Be well. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.